Welcome back to the VMP Anthology Podcast, the story of Ghostly International. I'm Vivian Host, and in this second episode in the series, From Ann Arbor to the World, we'll be talking about the first two records that you're going to be receiving in your box set. First, we've got a whopping 20-track compilation called Ghostly Swim, a joint 2008 effort in between Ghostly and the Adult Swim channel. It's a perfect introduction to the breadth and depth of the label, featuring artists like Matthew Deere, Tycho, Dabri, and Mishnah. Next, we'll go deep inside the world of Full Circle, the debut album from longtime Ghostly artist Shigeto. In the first episode, you learned a lot about Ghostly's origin story. These two releases bring us up to around the 10-year mark of the label. By this time, Ghostly was well on its way to becoming one of the best-known Indian electronic labels in North America, if not the world. In the next half hour, I travel from New York to Los Angeles to Detroit to talk to the people who were instrumental in making these projects come to life. The Ghostly Swim compilation series is a collaborative effort in between Ghostly International and Adult Swim, the late-night programming block of Turner's Cartoon Network. Adult Swim has brought you shows such as Aqua Teen Hunger Force, The Venture Brothers, Tim and Eric Awesome Show, and Rick and Morty. The first volume of Ghostly Swim was released as a free download in 2008 and has never been available on vinyl before. Here's Sam Valenti, founder of Ghostly International, to tell you a bit more about how this series came to be. Uh, I reached out to Adult Swim maybe a year or two before that, uh, maybe in 07, 06. They have bumps, as anybody who watches it knows, that they have witty taglines, and underneath the bed music is interesting stuff. So they were using Warp and Flying Lotus kind of came of age through those bumps in some ways. So I was like, oh, okay, this is a good example of the kind of stuff we should be involved with and um, asked if we could submit music for Bumps and they were receptive. And I think once we developed a relationship, um, they had done some compilations with labels like Stone's Throw and asked us to do our own Ghostly edition, hence the name Ghostly Swim. Tell me a little bit more about what we're gonna hear on this compilation. Ghostly Swim is a snapshot of the roster at that time. So it connects the original roster. You've got Matthew Deere, Dabry, Osborne, etc., And you have artists that are kind of a new generation. School of Seven Bells debuts for the label on there. Um, not on the vinyl version, but originally. The Chap from London also debuted on there. I think the biggest breakout artist from that compilation to some degree was Destro who was a kid from Detroit. He was a mix of electronic and rock. It was very performative, it was very vocal. Yeah, I mean, Mishna, Mox Mool, it's kind of like a cool blend of all the things that we had wanted to do from dance music to hip hop to IDM. It, it feels like a little bit of everything that we were about the first 10 years. Yeah, the goal with all of our compilations is like not to be like one sound. I mean, the later compilations have been more studied, but this comes from the tradition of like Idol tryouts, which came before it. And also the shows we were doing at the time, which is like you have a rock, a rock electronic band and a DJ 
and a guy with a disc man and like it's kind of accepting of maybe you won't like every track but that's okay the the parts represent a whole as well and a lot of people have told me that, that they got into electronic music or whatever through ghostly swim which is which is a compliment How do you guys see Ghostly Swim 1 in comparison to Ghostly Swim 2 or some of the other label compilations? I see Ghostly Swim 1 as sort of a statement. Like we can play in a lot of different lanes and like it's okay because it's all one thing. Ghostly Swim 1 was meant to be listened to straight through and, and Josh Eustace who mixed some of the tracks, mastered it all and also helped us sequencing too. You know, it was treated as like a, an album, but it's like this like mega, it's like 20 tracks or whatever, like really over the top. But they're also meant to like expose people to new or relatively new artists, which, which Adult Swim has been very faithful to. Underneath me, you're listening to Fahrenheit Fair Enough by Telephone Tel Aviv, off their 2001 album of the same name. That album came out about the same time that Joshua Eustace and Charlie Cooper of the band first met Sam from Ghostly International, while they were stuffing envelopes in the office of the hefty record label in Chicago, Illinois. A lot has happened since that time. Charlie unexpectedly passed away in 2009, and Josh prolific producer and engineer, has done everything from touring with Nine Inch Nails to making all manner of dystopian electronic music in outfits like Second Woman and The Black Queen. I recently met up with Joshua Eustace in Los Angeles to see what he recalls of the painstaking process of mixing and mastering the first Ghostly Swim compilation. We're here in Los Angeles in the lovely synthfield studio of Brian Foote. That's my desk right there. It was the mixing desk that was owned by John McIntyre at Soma, and he made a bunch of Stereo Lab records on it and Tortoise records and Seeing Cake records. And then I bought it from him maybe like 14 years ago, and then I used it and made a bunch of records on it. In fact, the Ghostly Swim Volume 1 was mixed on this desk. What do you remember about mixing the first Ghostly Swim compilation or the music on it? How how divergent all the artists' um, ideas and opinions are about how something needs to get mixed. Matthew Deere, who was like, oh, yeah, man, whatever. Uh, Yeah, it sounds great. Okay, Uh, I trust you. Okay, cool. And then uh, Danny Scales, I think I did the most prints of his song. Uh, That would have been The Reflecting Skin, that project. He had such a very specific 
idea in his mind about the way he wanted that track to sound, that it, want, that it needed to be just broken and insanely aggressive and really harsh. And I kept trying to sort of soften it. Like the engineer in me kept trying to say, oh, I need to make this sound nice like the rest of the stuff on the record. And he's like, hey man, stop trying to take the edges out of my, stop trying to file it down. Like I left it rough, like keep it rough, just make it loud. Like, okay, okay, I get it. All right, dude, I get it, I get it. Sam wanted everything to sort of have a little bit of a sound to it. And so he had the artists send me stems for their, their song contributions to the comp. And then Sam came out for two weeks and uh, every day in the studio, he would just kind of sit there and he gave me some notes. He's got really good ears on this kind of stuff. And he's having run a record label for as long as he has. He surely has ears enough to be on the mixing desk. And so he can say, ah, this, this part's a little bit bright or shrill, or, you know, this thing feels like, a, this one doesn't have, it feels like it has less low end than all the other songs on the comp, you know, this kind of thing. So we, I mixed every song on there. Yeah, there are so many tracks on that record. It's crazy to think about kind of trying to make them all sound like they belong together in some way, because in a lot of ways that compilation is the most divergent of styles in the ghostly catalog yeah. from like proto beat scene stuff like Fly Am Sam, um, which is Flying Lotus and Sam I Am from Brain Feeder. And then there's more techno sounding stuff. And then there's more like shoegazy sounding stuff. I mean, I don't know. It's it's like the full gamut of- Early period Tycho when he was doing like the woozy synth thing. And yeah, I mean, it was wildly divergent in a good way. But yeah, the, the cool thing about the Adult Swim thing is that there was no sort of creative oversight whatsoever. They were like, do your thing. Just give us some cool music, which is, speaking from 25 years of experience in the music industry, it's pretty rare. Usually they want to retain some sort of control or some sort of editorial oversight. None of that with them. They were like, we sent the compilation to them. They were like, cool. That was Joshua Eustace. By the way, he's just released his first album in 10 years as Telephone Tel Aviv on Ghostly. It's called Dreams Are Not Enough, and it's beautiful. You should listen to it, after this podcast, of course. Underneath me, you're listening to Traffickers by Reflecting Skin. Here's Sam Valenti to tell you why this track reminds him a lot of the Ghostly Swim artwork. I think the Reflecting Skin track sounds like the album cover to me, like it's like kind of chugging and like lurching and like actually kind of like those two together make sense to me. Yeah, it's weird. It's a weirdly ominous cover for me in the ghostly catalog. Yeah. It's kind of like something wicked this way comes feeling like there's something kind of ominous about it, but it's also playful. But I think it speaks to the perfect uh, emotional tone of the project. But it's also whimsical and cute, like the, the iRock song. It's a little like 
It's like getting up on its hind legs. I don't know. It's, it's finding its voice. It's also kind of the maturation of Boy Capper. These guardians are like um, allies through the wilderness of Ghostly. They kind of pop up here and there and they're abstracted. This uh, artist named Jacob Escobedo, who's at Adult Swim, uh, reimagined them in this context. And then Adult Swim let us make a, a cartoon music video that storyboarded from a cartoon Michael Siegel made, the creators of Boy Kepper, that was in the liner notes of a previous compilation. So it allowed us to like push the narrative to like a logical place, which is like animate the characters, expand them without fully giving them uh, away. Like as far as they're not cheapened by that, they're kind of made more tactile and imaginative, which is a good metaphor for the project. It's like fortified what we were trying to do visually as well as musically. What else was going on around this time at the Ghostly label? Because this is leading directly up to your 10-year anniversary. Yeah, I think it's the beginning of exciting, an exciting stretch. Um, Tycho comes into picture a little bit before this, and he's obviously kind of growing. So 10-year anniversary feels like we made it through a pretty weird patch and it's like okay we we did 10 shows around the world um Tycho starting to gain steam um right after that Matthew has Black City which gets a lot of love I just think of it as a a positive time where we're still working within a sort of crew concept but there's like a extended global cast of characters that have expanded the landscape and also musically our electronic vision is sort of uh, validated by culture that electronic music is normalized through all these various genres and styles. We have like uh, some guiding principles on the website. One of them is sort of pro technology. And what that means to me is that you're, you're tr we're trying to use the best aspects of the day. Obviously there's a lot to not like about technology at this moment in time, but, but there's a way to connect with people that's exciting, let's approach it. So TV obviously is a big thing. And uh, I think a lot of our existing fans discovered us through Ghostly Swim. You're tuned in to the VMP Anthology Podcast on Ghostly International. The next record you're going to be receiving in the box set is Shigeto's 2010 debut album, Full Circle, which marks the beginning of his now 10-year relationship with Ghostly. Only a limited number of vinyl copies of this album were originally pressed. Shigeto's trajectory and his influences sort of make him the ultimate Ghostly artist. Zach grew up in Ghostly's hometown of Ann Arbor, Michigan. He lived in New York and London before eventually settling in his current home of Detroit in 2012. 
I got to sit down with Shigeto on a lazy summer afternoon at his house on Bagley Street in Detroit's Mexican town. I think it's important before you listen to this debut album full circle that you get a little bit of an idea about the influences that shaped Shigeto in the first place. My name is Zachary Shigeto Saginaw, and we're at my home in Detroit. I moved here in late 2012. I had never lived in Detroit prior to that. Um, grew up in Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor is a crazy phenomenon, I feel, culturally growing up. Uh, the proximity of Detroit and its influence was inevitable, but it wasn't, you know, we lived in this completely different environment. You had exposure to all this music, different music, whether it was punk or jazz or hip hop or techno, all the different scenes, but it was completely safe and you just had freedom to create. That was the experience for a lot of people, whatever their financial upbringing was. Yeah. Like Ghostly came out of this place, Ann Arbor, you know? It's like some guys in their dorm room, like, let's do this record label, you know? It was, and that was so influential too, being in Ann Arbor, being like, what is this? This logo, they got merch, they're throwing these parties, and they have stickers and shirts, and I want one, like, you know? <laughs> I wasn't involved with the electronic scene, the dance scene, the DJ scene, it was it was all jazz and stuff for me. So at what point did you start messing around with like electronic music production or anything that was beyond jazz drumming and more into the realm of beat making? I was like a hip hop head, a jazz head. Then I think 2001, that's when I heard Dabre, and I was just like, whoa, like, what is, what is this? Like, hip-hop beats, but essentially, like, techno sounds, electro sounds. I had never heard that combination. It was always, like, a, a jazz thing or a sampled thing, but it, it wasn't like a, a sawtooth bass stab but in that setting and then it just I got kind of sucked in and started checking everything out you know like Matthew Deere's stuff uh, Midwest product uh, I got turned on to like Telefon Tel Aviv and that sort of stuff through the compilations that they were putting out uh, and then Tad's whole world opened me up I was like oh what's James T. Cotton, that be, you know, that became JTC or oh SK1, and then it was like oh Sound Murder, oh Todd, oh like, like, and then it was like linking to Reflex, and it was, it just I realized how linked this stuff was to my what I knew as electronic music. I'm sure <laughs> that it was really appealing that a lot of this music was made by people that were accessible and local. It's not like becoming obsessed with a UK bleep or something that's so far away. 
this was like, could be like a hometown pride. Exactly. No, that's exactly what it was. It was, it still is. It, it, it's always been though. Ever since I saw people from where I was from doing things I wanted to do in a way I admired, it was about that. It was just like, this is what I'm rooting for. This is what inspires me because it's here. It's real, it's accessible, it's, it's right in front of me and I get to be a part of it. Tell me a little bit about kind of your musical trajectory. It was all jazz at the beginning, really. It was, I was like 10 years old, trying to get into eighth grade jazz band. Like my parents got me a little drum kit and just playing in bands, drumming, hip hop, funk, rock. But that was the whole goal was jazz at the beginning. It was like, I'm gonna go to New York, I'm gonna study, be a jazz drummer, da da da. My favorite drummers were like Elvin Jones, Tony Williams. I was huge on Pharaoh Sanders too, and I've, I've kind of gravitated back towards that. Alice Coltrane, Miles, like Four and More, like My Funny Valentine and Four and More, Live at the Fillmore, 1964. That record is crazy. I basically was in a high school that was only jazz combos, community high. In Ann Arbor, it's a public school, but it was like the alternative. Like there was like different tiers of beginning, intermediate, advanced, and there's like this top band, and everyone wants to get into this top band because then you can play gigs and actually be doing some shit, and you're still in high school. And wow, okay, myself and all the the homies that we grew up we were playing with, we get into this top band. Eventually, it, I was clashing super hard with this jazz instructor. And then we basically all get kicked out of it. <laughs> you know, it was, it was pretty whack. But at the same time, there was this guy, Vincent York, who is an artist in resident at the school. You know, he was there for us. And when he heard about this, he was just like, y'all are too good for this. I'll take you under my wing, you can be in my band. And so essentially I grew up playing under Vincent York, playing the jazz festival a lot as a young teenager. He taught me everything, how you get paid at a gig, like how to dress for what gig, how to not be late. And he was a sax player, but I learned how to play from him. I was the guy like, asking everyone to sample me or like, yo, can I play some drums on your beat so I can be part of the beat? Please, <laughs> I wanna be part of the beat. I moved to New York City to go to jazz school. 
at new school, dropped out, stayed in New York for a while, but it was getting crazy. It was not a good time. And uh, I had a random life preservers thrown at me from my dad that was like, hey, I know this guy in London. He has a job. You want to just go out there and get out of here and work? And I was like, yes. So I just went. What was the job? It was maturing and exporting and selling British artisan cheese. Yes. My my visa literally in my passport said cheesemonger. Your dad owns a deli, right? <laughs> yes, he runs he runs a deli and and it was obviously my first job was working, you know, in food in some capacity. But it ended up being a savior. Like it I fell in love with this job. I completely changed, completely I feel it grew up, you know, essentially in London working at this place but the thing was the job was super super hard on my body you're dealing with like 20 to 50 kilo wheels of cheeses you're like flipping them over every day because they're maturing so you might look good you might be looking cut right but actually actually tendonitis has taken over your entire body so so i i was uh essentially couldn't do anything, couldn't work, couldn't play drums. I was like, why is this happening, you know? And my brother was visiting from here and was like, yo, you should use this copy of Reason that I have and just mess around with this. And I was, it just finally pushed me to just do it because I couldn't do anything musically at all. I just loved to play music and like, but when I figured out I could like make music like inside a computer just on my own and like export it and listen to it or burn a CD and be like, whoa, this is actually like, this is giving back to me so quickly. You know, it's, it's so exciting and I can just do this. I don't have to call somebody up and, you know, have them create with me. The, but the years that I had put into it, I into music I think prior and knowing people at Ghostly and all of that I think it really did help Full Circle was actually made mostly in the basement of my parents house I moved back to Ann Arbor from London, you know, four years abroad. Okay, here's that time where you show back up at your parents' house. Gotta, you know, center myself back at home base. At first I got a job, a cheese job, and it was a good cheese job. (laughs) Cause, uh, Cause I had come from this pretty prestigious dairy in, in London, right? For a long time now. So I, I actually ended up being the buyer, the, the head cheese person at Plum Market in Ann Arbor. This like kind of Whole Foodsy style place. I had like a salary and all this, all this shit I never had. And so I'm like hanging on to that cause it's all official, but I hate it so much. 
And I and my dad was just like, man, you don't you don't take your salary with you when you die. You might want to try and be happy while you're working, you know, while you're alive. You know, I'm not gonna hold it on you if you if you move on. And I was like, wow, thank you, Dad. Holy shit, blah blah. I basically just was unemployed <laughs> for a long time, and I just stayed in the basement of my parents making tracks and. My dad was actually like, yo, I've never, I've never seen you work on anything this much. Like I've never seen you spend hours and hours just like in this dungeon. Like he's like, you're treating it like work. If you treat it like work, you can stay here. You don't have to get a job. I'm not gonna get you anything, but you don't have to pay rent. You don't have to, you know, you can just stay here. And I basically just did that. It was just like, I need to be doing this, I don't know. But there wasn't anything that was paying anything at that point. Like it was completely labor of love. Well, it still is, but you know what I mean. But it was an important record for me. It was the first She Ghetto full length. I named it Full Circle because for me it felt like that, which is so funny. It was the very beginning of Ghostly and I, but it felt like a full circle thing because it was going from a high school student and popping by the office and being like, hey, uh, what's up? Uh, to like, okay, we're putting this record out. It's pretty much why I called it that. It was like a milestone for sure in my life. Do you have any thoughts towards, okay, I'm making an album and I it needs to have this and that, or it needs to have some sort of trajectory, or was it quite literally oh, like? No, I definitely, definitely had that. Um, I had it so much to the extent that it it was changed by, by Ghostly. It was a huge learning experience for me, actually. But it made the record what it was. Um, I had all these interludes. I had all these like little personal things going on, like, my grandmother literally talking about being in the Japanese internment during World War II and, you know, like very personal stuff. It broke the, uh, the record apart. I look back at it and it was, it was not what Ghostly needed it to be. I, I will never forget uh, Jeff Owens, the conversation he had. He was like, no one knows about you. He's like, the way we're buying music right now, like somebody can just buy a track. He was like, we need you to showcase what you can do, man. I don't see that as insulting my artistic integrity. I saw that as shaping me as an artist for somebody to enjoy in a good way. Like, no pun intended, but we've come full circle. It's like, now they let me do what I want to do. I can, I'm putting out a jazz record <laughs> like. You know what I mean? It's like, but it's like they were helping me uh, shape 
a certain entrance. And Full Circle was that entrance. There was room for ambient stuff. It was a weird record. It was primarily beat-centric, but like a lot of weird kind of experimental stuff going on, like busier than, than a lot of my music now. I feel more dense, you know, in a lot of ways. And, you know, taking out those certain elements and then just having it be this thing that was track after track made it what it is. It showed me another side of how you can curate something and it doesn't have to rely on something that is so personal. It's just letting the music be the music, you know, without kind of putting this message behind it, which they let me get in later with with lineage and all that. What were some of these interludes or storytelling pieces that were part of the making of? Oh man, one was Grandma's Words, which actually became an outro on a track on What We Held On To, which was a digital-only EP. Grandma's Words was a short ambient track of me playing like Rhodes or something and her speaking about fear and how powerful it is and the experience of her watching her father's kind of like very close friends just shun their family and turn their back to them and ice them completely, you know, during the internment during World War II but they all kind of popped up in different places. Um, one is on Semicircle, which was the digital EP that came out prior to Full Circle. And then one is on What We Held On To, which is the EP that came out after Full Circle. Harbor and uh, what? What's going on? More I couldn't come into the house, you know, what I heard. You know, looking at you and so they took my father to the police station and let him go, but these were his friends. He knew it, you know, and I'm sure they had this, you know, and I'm sure they had this. It's amazing how people can turn on you for the... Because, you know, fear, it does a terrible thing to people. It can, it can change to hate, it can change to, you know, discrimination of all kinds. Am I right in saying that there were a lot of field recordings on Full Circle? Yes, it was what I had. Like, I had a Tascam recorder and I had Reason 2 or maybe 3 or something. And you couldn't record audio into Reason. And so basically you only had this one sampler you could use. So all my audio came from the Tascam or my voice memo recordings on my phone or something. So everything was a field recording, even the piano. I'm doing the same thing now, but just like, I have a lot more stuff to do it with. It's still just in a way reason and audio, but I have an actual drum machine or an actual synthesizer and space to record live drums. So did your life change after Full Circle came out? During that time period, essentially, uh, was when I joined School of Seven Bells. 
which was a great band on Ghostly, uh, the DeHazy Sisters, and uh, Ben, Benjamin Curtis. Um, rest in peace, my brother. Uh, but that's when they took me under their wing as a live drummer addition. And that's when I went on the road and all of a sudden all my income was from music. It wasn't Shigeto per se, but it was like, whoa, no more cheese. <laughs> music only, at least for now. And it, and it hasn't gone back. So there you have it, everything you wanted to know about Shigeto's Full Circle and the first Ghostly Swim compilation. In our next episode, we're going to be going on a deeper and more heady trip, talking about two artists from seaside cities nearly 5,000 miles apart. I'd love it if you unpack your next two records while you listen to episode three of this podcast. This season of VMP Anthology is produced and hosted by me, Vivian Host. Yes, that's my real name. Our engineer is Ryan Woodhall. Can't wait for you to hear the next episode. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.